So today's parable is the last in a series of stories Jesus tells as he makes his long journey from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in the south. Ten chapters Luke devotes to this journey that Jesus makes. And along the way, Jesus tells all sorts of stories to those who are following him and who are joining in for that journey. Stories that invite them and us to imagine our way into the kingdom of God. To imagine what it's like to live within it and what it means to be faithful. This is the final story in that section of Luke. And it's a little bit strange. Are you ready? Let's pray. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find freedom. And in your way that we find peace. So come, O Lord, and shine upon us that we might know you and follow. In your name we pray. Amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book that we love. As they listened to this, Jesus told them another parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought God's kingdom would appear right away. He said, A certain man who was born into royalty went to a distant land to receive his kingdom and then return. He called together ten servants and gave each of them money worth about four months' wages. He said, do business with this until I return. Now his citizens hated him. So they sent a representative after him who said, we don't want this man to be our king. After he received his kingdom, he returned and called the servants to whom he had given the money to find out how much they had earned. The first servant came forward and said, your money has earned a return of a thousand percent. The king replied, Excellent, you are a good servant because you've been faithful in this small matter. You will have authority over ten cities. The second servant came and said, Master, your money made a return of five hundred percent. To this one, the king said, You will have authority over five cities. Another servant came and said, Master, here's your money. I wrapped it up in a scarf for safekeeping. I was afraid of you because I knew that you were a stern man. You withdraw what you haven't deposited and you reap what you didn't plant. And the king replied, I will judge you according to your own words, you worthless servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a stern man, withdrawing what I didn't deposit and harvesting what I didn't plant? Why then didn't you put my money in the bank? Then when I arrived, at least I could have gotten it back with interest. And he said to his attendants, take his money and give it to the one who has 10 times as much. But master, they said, he already has 10 times as much. He replied, I say to you that everyone who has will be given more. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for my enemies who don't want me as their king, bring them here and slaughter them before me. After Jesus said this, he continued on ahead going up to Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, that's a strange parable, isn't it? We'll see what sense we can make out of it together this morning. Jesus and all these followers have been making this long journey together. They've just passed through Jericho, the last city along the way. They are almost to Jerusalem. And as they draw near, they're doing so to celebrate the festival of Passover, which remembers God's miraculous saving of the people out of Egypt. How God came miraculously with Moses to rescue the people from slavery and oppression. And it seems that their expectations were high that God might do that work again. Luke says they're almost to Jerusalem and Jesus tells this parable because they thought God's kingdom would come right away. They've seen what Jesus has been doing. They've heard what Jesus has been saying. And as they approach Jerusalem, this crowd is convinced that Jesus is going to rise up to throw out the Romans and establish God's earthly kingdom with its capital in Jerusalem. And so Jesus stops right before entering the city in what we know as Palm Sunday. And he tells a story about a king and a kingdom. Jesus is not being subtle. He's speaking directly into all of that expectation. And this morning, if we can hold those two things together, the expectation that the kingdom of God will come right away and the parable Jesus tells, then there are three things that become really apparent to us in making sense out of this passage. The first one's a timeline. They think God's kingdom is coming right away. And you wouldn't blame them for thinking this if you've been following along with Jesus. He's been saying, after all, over and over again, the kingdom of God has come near. He sends out his followers to go and preach throughout the countryside. The kingdom of God has come near. And if the kingdom has come near in Jesus, if Jesus is the king who will sit on the throne, and if he's going up to Jerusalem, the capital of all Israel, and the site of God's temple and presence in the world, then surely the kingdom is about to appear, right? And yet Jesus tells a story about a king who needs to go off on a long journey to a far away place. The details are vague, but in that far off land, the king will then receive the crown only to make a long return journey to finally get back. And this is all going to take a while. Jesus too will be king, but he too is embarking on a long journey The journey begins as he enters the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We celebrate that next week, but it's about to happen in the story. He goes into the temple and cleanses it of all the bad things going on there. Money changers, people making money, uh, changing money, and also selling sacrifices in the temple. Jesus throws them all out to make room for the house to be a place of prayer. In the week to come, he will be arrested, tried, and crucified. He'll be resurrected. He'll ascend up into heaven. And in that far off country, he will receive his throne and his kingdom and will one day return. But there is a long journey and an interim period between now and then. 
The king is gone. And his citizens are left to wonder in the meantime if he will, in fact, return. One of the purposes of this parable seems to be preparing those who are about to enter into this interim time, as well as us, as we have lived our whole lives in it, for how to be faithful while the king is away. The first thing that we see is that Jesus' kingdom has a different timeline. The second thing that we see are are the citizens in this story, actually. It's one of the surprising parts about this story that stands out, that the king's own citizens hate him and don't want him to be king, and that they hate him so deeply that they send an embassy after him to protest and to say, we don't want this man to be our king. It must have been shocking for those Jews who first heard Jesus tell this story those who were waiting for God's kingdom to show up at any moment, who believed Jesus was going to throw out the Romans, their political enemies, and establish them and their glory in the world, it must have been shocking for them to hear that the king's enemies aren't the geopolitical rivals, but his own citizens. They expected the kingdom to come and destroy their enemies and establish them in their glory. But as Jesus tells the story, The king's opposition are his own countrymen. His own citizens are the ones who don't want him to be king. And when he returns, it's them who will be judged. And as Jesus arrives into Jerusalem in that next week, that's exactly what we see play out. For he does not enter into conflict with Rome, but with his own people. It's the religious leaders that plot to have him killed. It's his own people who rise up and chant, crucify, crucify, crucify. And the active opposition to the rule of Jesus Christ doesn't end with his crucifixion. And it doesn't end with the pages of scripture. And it is not a uniquely Jewish problem. It's a uniquely human one. For our story is that God made us and made us for himself. That God loves us and came to us, and yet we ran and hid. That we wanted nothing to do with God. That we live in open rebellion against our king because we reject him in order to seek ourselves instead. Now this story says that that rebellion will one day be put down. But not until the day when the king returns. This fall, as we studied the book of Revelation, we learned a lot about what that will look like when the king and the kingdom do finally arrive in this world. But for now, the citizens are in open rebellion. That's the second thing we see in this story. So now here's the last one. Because there are ten other characters in this story, ten servants of the king. And I think this is kind of where Jesus' disciples are supposed to see themselves in the story. I think we should wonder about the rebellion in our own hearts. But I think this is the key place where we're supposed to see ourselves. The king calls the ten servants in before he leaves, gives them money, about four months' worth of wages, and tells them to carry on business in his absence. 
So Kenneth Bailey is an expert in Middle Eastern culture and especially in understanding how that culture shows up in the stories of the Gospels. And he's pointed out that as Western capitalists, we tend to hear part of this story a little wrong. We hear these servants given money by their master who go off and grow it by five and ten times and we're blown away by the profit. What incredible return on investment. What's their secret? We wonder, how did they do it? We're thinking about how to grow resources and material success. And through that lens this story actually becomes a story about works righteousness. Have you done enough with what Jesus has given you? Have you grown and multiplied God's kingdom enough to be worthy as a servant of the king? Or not? But Jesus seems to go off in a slightly different direction as he tells this story. Because when the master gives the servants this money, what he literally says is, do business with it, in which I return. And that's an awful sentence that means very little in English. So no wonder most translations say, until I return. And the picture we get is, go off and do as much as you can until I get back. The time is short. But it literally means something more like, do business in a situation in which I return. Do business because I will return. And in fact, when he returns again, the question he asks isn't how much money did you make, but more literally, how much business have you done? And with these two distinctions, something different begins to come into frame. Their master is leaving. He believes that he'll receive his throne in return, but really, who knows? The political stability we take for granted has not been the norm throughout the history of humanity. Much the opposite is true. Those times of political transition are remarkably unstable and times of great anxiety. Periods between rulers are generally volatile and no one really knows what's going to happen, who is going to ascend and rule and what direction things will go. And in fact, Jesus' parable seems to almost certainly be based on a real story from the not-too-distant past. It was 4 BC, and Herod the Great, who was the puppet king installed by Caesar Augustus, dies, and his son Archelaus goes off on a trip to Rome to petition Caesar to receive his father's throne. Unbeknownst to him, a whole embassy of Jews follow after and plead that he not be made their king. And as a result, Caesar doesn't make him king. He gives him a lesser title and far less territory than his father ruled over. And when he returned home, he was so furious, he slaughtered about a thousand Jews in retaliation. These servants who are given money and encouraged to do business while he's away, don't know what's going to happen. They do know that their fellow citizens do not want their master as king, and they don't know if he will in fact receive the throne. They don't know if he'll ever even return again. And in those great seasons of uncertainty and instability, those might not be the times to invest heavily in the market, right? Probably better to keep your money in bonds or even cash. Don't jump heavily into the market and try to do business when we don't know what's going to happen. It'd be much wiser to hang back, wait and see how the chips fall, 
to wait and see if your master actually becomes king and not risk all the rejection and ruin in the meantime. What the master seems to be asking them to do is not to make money with what he gives them while he's away, to grow it in that capitalistic sense, but to trust that he will in fact return as king and to begin to live in the meantime like that's so. That in this season of great instability and anxiety, when their fellow citizens actively oppose them and their master's rule, to continue to do his business anyway, to continue to use the resources he's given to work in his name, unpopular as it may be. And when he returns, what he asks is to see the ledger, the book, How much business have you been doing? How many transactions have you made? Were you out actively working in my name or did you hang back and wait to see how things would shake out? Investing only a little here or there where it was safe and not willing to be out in my name working while I'm gone. What the master wants to know is if they will trust that he is actually king And will actually return. And if they're willing to act in his name until he does. And the first two citizens do. The first two servants do. The master's resources grow tremendously in his absence. And the master praises them for being faithful. But then there's that third servant. Out of all the characters in the story, this one actually receives the most attention by Jesus. Not the two successful ones, not the seven that we never hear from, not the citizens in open rebellion, but this guy. This guy who, while his master was away, took the resources he'd been given, wraps them in a handkerchief, and stashes them under the mattress. The guy who does nothing. And he says he does nothing because he's afraid of his master, because he knows that he is a stern man who takes what he hasn't deposited, who harvests what he hasn't planted. But the master points out the inconsistency with this. If you thought I was stern, then why wouldn't you at least put this money in the bank and earn interest? In the day, it was illegal for Jews to charge each other interest, but If the master was stern and harvests what he doesn't plant, why would he care? This is exactly the kind of business he'd want you to be doing. Charge exorbitant interest, please, make money. But the servant doesn't do even that. The servant doesn't do anything with what he's been given. He just hides it and keeps it. And so even what he has is taken away from him. Not because he tried something and failed at it, but because he didn't do anything at all while his master was away. He was unwilling to do his master's work. It seems like for Jesus, non-participation in the kingdom, burying the resources God has given is just as big a deal, if not more so, than actively opposing the kingdom of God. It gets more attention in this story by far and seems to really be the focus of what Jesus is telling us. 
That is, the other two are commended for doing business in the master's absence. This one is described as a useless servant. And even what he has is taken from him because he's unwilling to do the master's work. What is that work? What is the, the mina, the money that is given for that time of the master's departure? Well, it's what Jesus has been giving his followers all throughout this Gospel of Luke. It's these stories that we plant within us and sow in the world. It's the announcement that the kingdom of God has come near. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and the spirit that Jesus will pour out upon his followers after he ascends into heaven. The gospel and the spirit are what has been given by God to continue God's business in the world, to continue to bear witness to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We've been given the word to proclaim to our neighbors and to strangers, to a world that lives even in active opposition to the king, but yet needs to hear this good news. In this long interim, two masters are willing to do their master's business, and one servant is not. We live in this same interim period. We are servants of the returning king. The king is coming. And when he arrives, what will he find in your ledger? What will he find when he opens the books to see what you have done with his gospel and his spirit? Will he find only a couple of entries? That you've played it safe with the faith. That you wrapped up what God has given you, unwilling to take a risk in the world. Waiting to see how things will shake out in the end. Or will he find the books full? Full of your faithfulness sharing the word, witnessing to Jesus, trusting that the king will return and living like it's so, even when your fellow citizens reject and deny him. Because to all those who have, who've invested heavily in the word and the spirit, who've seen it grow five and tenfold as they share it in the world, to them, even more will be given. That's the way God's grace works. But to those who have none, who've buried it and hidden it, even what they have will be taken away. The king is coming. What's in your ledger? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these stories you've been telling along the way. We thank you for the way that they have opened our mind and imagination to enter into your kingdom. For reminders about the bounty of your grace. For reminders about how we ought to pray. For the hospitality we are to practice to all those in the world around us. And for this one that sets our expectations about the timeline of your kingdom. That we now may rest confident that you are in fact on the throne and on your way back. And while we wait, though that takes far longer than we would ever want, 
Lord, for this encouragement to be faithful in the meantime, to be doing your work in the world around us, to be sharing the gospel in word and in act, to be living out of the Spirit and to be trusting in the Spirit's gifts as we go out into the world and to rejoice and worship in all of it that we know the one who sits upon the throne even though the world may not. So Lord, come in your glory, come with your kingdom and come soon. In your name we pray, amen.